before we turn our attention to Leviticus 5, which is where we are this morning, there is one larger point of application I want to emphasize, as well as kind of a footnote I'd like to add to the way in which we're approaching this incredible book. First, the point of application. I mentioned in our introduction a few weeks ago that there is no question as you study the book of Leviticus, the details really do matter. Like, in fact, the details end up being the very mechanism through which God accomplishes his larger work. Now, don't forget the purpose of Leviticus is that God is, is taking this nation of former slaves. He's just liberated from Egypt. And he's imparting to them a new identity. Beginning from Mount Sinai and Exodus, continuing from the tabernacle of meeting here in Leviticus, God is specifically ordering and structuring Israel. He's separating them for his purposes and making them distinct from the world around them. In this creation process, as we've seen already, the incredible attention to detail plays a significant role. Let me apply this idea by kind of speaking personally. Have you ever felt your life, or say your children's lives, or your marriage, was just dysfunctional? In, in some ways, that things were a little chaotic. Things weren't functioning, operating the way that they needed to be. That life wasn't operating as it, as it should. I know I have. I think most of us. And if you're like me, it's so easy when you're confronted with that reality, the chaos. It's so easy to get depressed by kind of the totality of the problem. If you have little kids, you totally sympathize with what I'm saying. Again, one of the many concepts that God is illustrating in Leviticus is that order always manifests from an attention to the details. We find this to be the case in the original creation narrative we find in Genesis. We see it again emerging here in the book of Leviticus. What this means, what this, uh, how this applies, is that instead, oh dear friend, instead of getting overwhelmed by the chaos, the totality of the problem in front of you, place your energy and focus on the details. Forget about the big picture. Just focus on the details, knowing that order always ensues. As Jessica and I have talked about this concept, the application for our children has been so helpful. Like our challenge, if I can speak personally, over the last few months has been twofold. One, getting two boys, age seven and four, to go to bed without the process of them going to bed descending into a total meltdown. Problem one. Problem two is then getting those same two boys out of bed, up for school, on time, without threatening to strip their lives of all human joy. And interestingly, this is where Leviticus has been so beneficial to us. Instead of getting frustrated by the situation, feeling like parental failures exploring all the ways we could legally put them both up for adoption. Our focus has been on the details. The details has helped create order. 
Like every night we're working on a routine. Some of you older parents are like, yep, I could have told you this, Zach. Well, Leviticus did, thanks. We're working on a routine. The details. Family dinner, followed by baths and showers, brushing teeth, reading books with mom, having distinct bedtimes, watching a little of the Braves game with dad. In the morning, to temper the madness, we're focusing on details. When the boys get home from school, backpacks, go in a certain place, lunch boxes, have their homes. Before bed, clothes for the next day get laid out, shoes and socks placed on the stairs, etc., etc., etc. Details, details. Things are chaotic, but don't get overwhelmed. Look at details. Leviticus teaches us order comes from details. Details create order, and order is the mortal enemy of chaos. So it's whether you're raising children, your own walk with the Lord, there's an application here, or just trying to get your home and your marriage and life operating in a more healthy way, never forget Here's an application. The valuable lesson presented in Leviticus that order always flows out of an attention to details. You'll find that in your work. You'll find that in life in general. Now, the footnote. Concerning these details, I had to very quickly establish a rule to help guide our study through Leviticus. And here's why. There are copious amounts of commentary written, aimed at kind of elucidating all of the typological meaning behind all of the details, theory after theory, explanation after explanation. I realized very early into my study in Leviticus, if I were to delve into any of those things, any of the theories, presenting them to you, we would get lost in the weeds and distracted from the main ideas God is trying to communicate through this important book. Now, while all of the details matter, are interesting, are important, here's the rule. The only explanations that I'm including in our study are the ones that, that seem obvious. So that's kind of the, the first rule. It's, it's an obvious point. Two, there are things that are broadly agreed upon by trusted commentaries. And three is that it can be easily verified. Now, all that being said, and the reason I bring this up is because I've had conversations with you after the Bible study where you're bringing up all kinds of just different details. You're reading in the footnotes. You're reading here. You're reading there. There's a reason that I've included what I've included but excluded other things. That being said, if you have questions about anything in Leviticus, and rightfully so, or if you'd like more explanation on certain things that maybe didn't make the cut, at the bottom of c316.tv, the page for this morning, you'll find my email address. This is what we're going to try. If you, at any point in the Bible study, you get a question, you get a thought, you want to share it, get more information here or there, just send me an email. And then once a week, what I'm going to do is I'm going to sit down and videotape a response, put it on our Facebook page, uh, and answer your questions. So at the bottom of c316.tv is my email address. You can send any questions that you might have. And it might even be a question that arises kind of related, but not necessarily pertaining to Leviticus. Send it in anyway. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at five specific sacrifices that the people of Israel were instructed to bring before the Lord at the tabernacle of meeting. In chapter 1, we looked at the burnt offering. In chapter 2, the grain offering. In chapter 3, the peace offering. In chapter 4, we saw the sin offering last week. This morning, let's kind of wrap up this section by spending some time uh, digging through what's known as 
the trespass offering. As we've done before, we're going to kind of work our way through the text, about a chapter and a half, and then we're going to kind of add our commentary or pull out the big lessons at the end. Verse 1 of Leviticus 5, if a person sins in hearing the utterance of an oath and is a witness, whether he has seen or known of the matter, if he does not tell it, he bears guilt. Now, this first scenario, the situation being presented is that, that you witness an accord between parties. At some point, for some reason, that accord, that deal gets violated. The terms are broken. But, while there's a contention between parties, you willingly choose to remain silent, allowing an injustice. God says, in such a situation, you bear guilt in the matter. Or, continuing, if a person touches anything unclean, whether it is the carcass of an unclean beast, or the carcass of an unclean livestock, or the carcass of an unclean creeping thing. These would be the unclean animals, and they're dead, double whammy. He's unaware of it. He shall be unclean. Doesn't matter if you're unaware, you're unclean and guilty. Or if he touches human uncleanness, whatever uncleanness with which a man may be defiled. Now, human uncleanness will be defined in later chapters, <clears throat> but he is unaware of it. When he realizes it, then he shall be guilty. Or if a person swears, speaking thoughtlessly with his lips, to do evil or to do good, doesn't matter. Whatever it is that a man may pronounce by an oath, and he is unaware of it, this would apply to making a rash vow or a rash promise without really thinking through the implications or whether you could make good on it. When he realizes he can't make good on it, well, he's guilty in any of these matters. Verse 5, it shall be, when he is guilty in any of these matters. So once you've realized your guilt, now we find the way you atone for, for that mistake. He shall confess, first thing, confess that he sinned in that thing. You've got to acknowledge to God that you've erred, and that error has a consequence. He shall bring, continuing on, his trespass offering to the Lord for his sin, which he has committed. The trespass offering, this is the asham or literally the guilt, as some of your translations might have, the guilt offering. You bring it to the tabernacle of meeting. It, it should be a female from the flock, a lamb or a kid of the goats. This is a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin. Now, in order to avoid kind of a natural confusion that tends to arise with the trespass offering, there are two things I want you to keep in mind. First, the trespass offering was unique. It's unique to all the other ones in that it incorporated the sin offering, and as we'll see in other instances, the burnt offering, and in one case, the peace offering. So it's unique because it incorporates other offerings as well. The second thing, keep in mind, is that there seems to be two different iterations of the trespass offering. As we just saw, there is a version of this offering made when restitution isn't applicable. It's just not relevant. But then in verse 14, we'll see a second form of the trespass offering that's specifically designed to include restoration when it's necessary, whether this is restoration to the Lord, to society, or to, to one's neighbor. Now, continuing in this first iteration, where restitution's not relevant, 
God provides now an alternative if, let's say, you're poor. So you don't have a lamb or a kid of the goats. If you're poor, verse 5, if he's not able to bring a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord for his trespass, which he has committed, two turtle doves and a partridge and two young pigeons. One is a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering. Now, the best explanation as, for, like, as to why two birds could be a trespass offering by then also doubling as both a sin and a burnt offering is really because the person's poor. I think that's the best explanation for why this concession is being made. And think about that for a moment. You're poor. You can only afford two birds. You've got multiple offerings to make. It can just double and triple and be applicable to all. It's also worth pointing out that birds were not included in the protocols of the sin offering, unlike the lamb or the kid of the goats, which tells us that the Lord is, is demonstrating just an incredible measure of grace by making this concession for such a poor person. Uh, verse 8, And he shall bring these two birds to the priest, who shall offer that which is for the sin offering first, ring off its head from its neck, which I guess would be logical, but shall not divide it completely. He shall sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar. The rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. He shall offer the second bird as a burnt offering according to the prescribed manner. And again, I appreciate uh, us not having the redundancies. Uh, The prescribed manner, the procedures for how to do this are articulated by the Lord back in chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. So, the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin which he has committed, and it shall be forgiven him. Now God provides a a final alternative. If you weren't just poor, but you're really, really poor. Verse 11, but if he's not able to bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, then he who sinned shall bring for his offering one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a sin offering. This would be about two quarts. He shall put no oil on it, nor shall he put frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. Unlike the peace offering, where you did bring fine flour and you mixed oil and frankincense, this offering was not to have the oil, it was not to have the frankincense, and ultimately, it wasn't to be a sweet aroma unto the Lord. This is an offering for a trespass, for a sin, something God did not delight in. Then he, the offerer, shall bring it, this is the two quarts of fine flour, to the priest. And the priest shall take his handful of it as a memorial portion and burn it on the altar according to the offerings made by fire to the Lord. It is a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement for him for his sin that he has committed in any of these matters. It shall be forgiven him. The rest shall be the priests as a grain offering. Now in Hebrews 9, verse 22, and I've got to bring up kind of a an interesting point of contention. We read something fascinating. We read, again, Hebrews 9, verse 22, that according to the law, this is what it says, according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Now, it's likely that the author of Hebrews had this very unique concession within the trespass offering for the extremely impoverished individual where they could bring fine flour to make atonement for their sin The author of Hebrews had this in mind when he wrote this. 
almost all things. This is an interesting and bizarre, strange concession. Now, there are some, and these tend to be more Orthodox Jews, that have tried to use this particular allowance for the atonement to be made through a non-blood offering as evidence that God could forgive sins apart from a blood sacrifice. That's the argument here. The problem with this is threefold. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I'm going to hit three points. First, a one-time concession under an extreme circumstance, such as abject poverty, does not discount the consistent precedent that's established all throughout Scripture that atonement for sin necessitated blood. Good rule of thumb. Good theology never derives from an exception. Secondly, unlike the concession made for birds being offered, it's clear that while the offering of one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour could be made for a sin offering, you notice what was excluded. You probably didn't. It, was, it could not double as a burnt offering. So it could be a sin offering, but it could not be a burnt offering. Now, why, why is that important? What that tells you is that atonement found in the burnt offering was still lacking, still had to be taken care of. Uh, lastly, the third point, and, and this is from a, kind of a much broader perspective concerning the totality of the sacrificial system. The fact still remains, even with this concession, the non-blood sacrifice, it could only be offered under an umbrella of a blood offering made for everyone on the Day of Atonement. So you still have blood being incorporated. Again, Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Now let's transition quickly here to the version of the trespass offering that required an act of restitution be included. This is where I think this gets really interesting. Verse 14, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, if a person commits a trespass and sins unintentionally in regard to the holy things of the Lord, so this is a trespass, or literally a treasonous act, as it could be translated, committed against God, the holy things of the Lord, then he shall bring to the Lord as his trespass offering a ram without blemish from the flocks with your valuation and shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary, as a trespass offering. Basically, the priest would make an evaluation of how much the ram was worth. Now that plays a role here in a moment. And he, the offerer, shall make restitution for the harm that he has done in regard to the holy thing, and shall add one-fifth to it. So it's important to have an evaluation of what the ram's worth, because your offering is not just the ram, but is also 20% more on top of it, of the, of the ram's value, and you give it to the priests. Now the word restitution we find, again, he shall make restitution for the harm in which he has done in regards to the holy thing. This word restitution, very similar to the word peace. You have the word shalom, peace in Hebrew. This is shalom, very similar. And it means to make peace, to make it good, to make things right. We continue on, so the priest shall make atonement for him, with the ram of the trespass offering, it shall be forgiven him. Now, the purpose for the trespass offering is now repeated by the Lord. 
Verse 17, if a person sins, commits any of these things which are forbidden to be done by the commandments of the Lord, though he does not know it, yet he is guilty and shall bear his iniquity, then he shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish from the flock with the evaluation, again this is summarizing, as a trespass offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him regarding his ignorance in which he has erred and did not know it, and it shall be forgiven him. It is a trespass offering. He has certainly trespassed against the Lord. Now, if you're studying Leviticus on your own, there seems to be, if you're reading various commentaries, a consensus among scholars that while God specified in Leviticus a way for unintentional sins to be atoned for through a sin offering, such a concession, these commentators will, will say, was never made for sin that was committed intentionally. So we find a lot of concessions for sin committed in ignorance or unintentionally, but if it was willful, no, there's not a concession for that, not a sacrifice. Now, aside from the fact that such a belief, such a position, overlooks the complexities of the word unintentional, and we got into that last Sunday, the other problem with the position it's actually the difficulty in now trying to explain or articulate a need for the trespass offering at all. Though it is absolutely true that there are a litany of sins no sacrifice could atone for in the, Levitic, the, in the Levitical system. For example, crimes like adultery, murder, rape, these were capital offenses. You couldn't do those things and then come and make an offering. That being said, I completely disagree with the notion that there was no sacrifice for sins committed with intent. Yes, it's true that within the trespass offering, the idea of sinning and ignorance was included. We just saw that. In verse 17, we read, If a person sins and commits any of these things which are, done, uh, which are forbidden to be done by the commandments of the Lord, though he does not know it, yet he is guilty and shall bear his iniquity. So, there is an ignorant component within the trespass offering, no doubt. However, don't forget how the entire section began. Remember? The chapter opens with a scenario where a person does what? He intentionally fails to step forward when an accord between parties has been violated. He chooses to remain silent. It's willful. He knows what's going on. He sees what's going on. He's choosing to do nothing about it. Now, in fact, let's, let's just read on here into chapter 6. And you tell me if there was no sacrifice for deliberate sins. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If a person sins and commits a trespass offering against the Lord by lying to his neighbor, about what was delivered to him for safekeeping or about a pledge. This is like if you, if you put a security deposit down. And he's like, oh, I never got his money. You're intentionally lying. This is kind of like small claims court here. Safekeeping, keep this, and then you lie about it. Or if, you, if there's a robbery, you take something from your neighbor through violence. Or if he has extorted from his neighbor. Literally, he intentionally defrauds his neighbor. Or if he's found what was lost and lies concerning it. You find something, you fail to turn it in, and swears falsely. In any of these things that a man may do 
in which he sins, and, and then we're going to get uh, the atonement or the process here, and circumstances of deliberate sin against one's neighbor, verse 4, it shall be, because he has sinned and is guilty, that he shall restore what he has stolen, or the thing which he has extorted, or what was delivered to him for safekeeping, or the lost thing which he found, or all that about which he has sworn falsely. He shall restore its full value, add one-fifth more to it, another 20%, and give it to whomever it belongs on the day of his trespass offering. So before you could come and make your offering, these things were required. You had to go do them first. Once you had restored the full value, added 20%, an inconvenience charge, then you could go make your offering. He shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord after restitution, a ram without blemish from the flock, with your evaluation as a trespass offering to the priests. So the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any one of these things that he may have done in which he trespasses. Seems kind of deliberate, doesn't it? Now understand, while the sin offering presented a path for atonement, for sins that were committed because, well, we're sinners. <laughs> sins that we commit because we're sinners by nature. Things that are not necessarily willful or deliberate, malicious, but we're guilty all the same. The sin offering. There is an element, undeniably, of the trespass offering that clearly addresses and makes concessions for sins that are committed intentionally, on purpose. Like, in a way, you can think of the trespass offering, at least a component of them, as conscious sins. The person knew what was right, they knew what was wrong, and they willingly chose to make an error, to sin. The person crossed the line they knew existed. Sure, whether a sin that's committed in ignorance or with intention, a sacrifice is required all the same. Unlike the sin offering, though, the trespass offering is different because beyond a sacrifice, the trespass offering, it required restitution be made in addition to a sacrifice. Yeah, you had to make good with God, but before that, you had to make good with the person you had harmed. As we read, if a sin was committed against the Lord, an additional 20% is given to the priests. If the sin was committed against one's neighbor, restoration included an additional 20% be added before you could ever come to the tabernacle and make your offering. Now, one detail that will help you understand what's being addressed is how frequently a three-letter word comes to the surface within our passage. You notice this word sin? It's frequent. It's used quite a bit. 21 times, by the way, in the last two chapters, we find the word sin. Eight times connected to the sin offering, but 13 times in regards to the trespass offering. Sin is discussed more with the trespass offering than even with the sin offering. Now, in the Hebrew, this word sin, it has kind of a two-sided meaning. It means to miss the way. That's one side of the coin. But the other side is to incur a penalty. To miss the way and incur a penalty because you missed the way. Two interconnected. 
Now, the idea of sin from a biblical standpoint, especially in regards to Leviticus, sin implies more than just doing something that misses the mark of God's righteous standard for human behavior. To sin is to also take upon oneself the necessary consequences for falling short. Both sides of the coin. This is why, in connection with the word sin, we also have a ruling of judgment. He is guilty and shall bear his iniquity or carry the full weight of it. Two ends of the equation. You're guilty because you fell short. You incurred a consequences as well. You're now bearing iniquity. Now here's the point. While the sin offering was focused on creating a path for a person to repent of their sin and receive God's forgiveness, the missing the way component, the trespass offering was designed to remove the weight and guilt of a person's sin. The penalty. Two sides of the coin addressing two different things. And to do this, it's, it's why it was required that you had to make restitution in addition to an atoning sacrifice. Now because freedom from the weight of sin necessitates first and foremost the repentance of sin, it makes sense that the trespass offering was completely intertwined with the sin offering. We noted last Sunday, the reason for this is that the sin offering sent your attention back to the burnt offering or God's sacrifice for atonement. Now, as we did last Sunday with the sin offering, let me try to wrap things up and help your understanding of what makes the trespass offering so significant by kind of presenting a few big ideas. First, one of the, the foundational concepts established in the trespass offering, and, and don't miss it, it's important. A sin against your neighbor is a sin against God. I, I know that sounds simple, but that should sink in. In verse 2 of chapter 6, if a person sins and commits what? A trespass against the Lord by lying to his neighbor. And then we have this list of things. So a sin against your neighbor is a sin against God. That's how God views it. Like, never forget. The primary victim of your sin is always your creator. Like, your actions miss the mark of his standard for human behavior. And ultimately, your atonement would demand he incur the penalty of your sin as well. It's a sin against God. You fell short of his standard, and he would have to take upon himself the sins of the world. He takes upon his sin, your sin, meaning he takes your sin personally, right? You understand that? It's serious business to God. Which then explains why we shouldn't be surprised when God always seems to land on the side of the victim when it comes to these type of situations. He takes it personally. A sin is not just against your neighbor, it's against God. Which leads to the second point. Look, don't overlook the fact the trespass offering demanded restitution with the victim before you were allowed to come to the tabernacle and make a sacrifice 
to the Lord. And what that tells us is that the law of God, he's establishing this idea that a failure to make things right with the person you've harmed will have a negative effect on your relationship with him. So, so don't miss this. A sin against your neighbor is a sin against God. Failing to make things right with the person you've harmed will have a negative effect on your relationship with him. Don't even come to the tabernacle. Don't even bring a sacrifice. Don't come at all until you go and you make restitution. Then you come. There's this principle at play. Now, it's true, and let me add a kind of a caveat to this. If you're in Christ Jesus, there is nothing that you can do to tarnish your right standing before God. You're righteous, justified. It's all good. Positionally, when God sees you, He sees the blood covering of Jesus. You're perfect from the perspective of God. And yet, while that's true, the law we find here still has a, a practicality. There's a practical application to it. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, this amazing sermon given by Jesus, where he's talking about the kingdom of God. He's discussing all these wonderful things, when out of the blue, the trespass offering, of all things, gets an honorable mention. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, this is what Jesus says. So he's in the middle of this thing about the kingdom of God. He says, if you bring your gift to the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Or, or you realize that your brother is upset with you because you've done something to hurt him. Jesus says, leave your gift before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled with your brother. And then come and make an offering of, of your gift. Don't forget, the entire purpose behind a sinner taking the steps to make restitution with the person they've wronged, was really to determine genuine repentance. Like, do you fully understand the effect of sin, the weight of guilt, what your actions have done? So, making restitution was required because it demonstrated genuine repentance, meaning the reason a failure to seek restoration affects your relationship with God is it reveals you haven't actually repented. See the connections? A failure to confess sin, to repent of sin, as demonstrated by a failure to go and make restitution, it will affect your relationship with God. Not standing in heaven but definitely your experience. Let me give you an example I think, I, I think you'll, you'll relate to. Everyone will understand, especially the married couples. When you act like an ass to your spouse, and there's no other word I can use to articulate what that means, and we all get it, because you've done it. When you act just terribly, you're in the wrong, but you're unwilling to apologize. And your pride, you're not going to make things right. I mean, it was a humdinger. 
And you were you totally in the fault. Let me ask, how's your prayer life that week? Good? I mean, you really connected with the Lord? If, if, that, if that fight between you and your spouse, let's say it carries over to Sunday, how's your worship experience? When you know that you bear guilt and you're not willing to make it right with the man or woman sitting or standing next to you. Oh man, just a great time before the Lord. No, it wasn't. We've been there. Like regardless of what I'm teaching in such a situation, it's likely the only message you're getting is stop being stupid and apologize and make it right. You see how this works? A failure to make restitution reveals a lack of genuine repentance. And a lack of genuine repentance will have a negative consequence on the experience you have with God. Now you're standing, but the experience, there's a wedge. So God says, go make it right. And then come, and let's fellowship. Again, failing to seek reconciliation in the end has a negative effect on your relationship with God. So, before you come to make an offering, before you come on Sunday to worship, make things right. Well, Pastor Zach, I've tried. I've tried to make it right. They won't accept my apology. You know what's interesting about the trespass offering? Is it, it, it doesn't matter if your overtures to make restitution are received or rejected. Did you see like there was no concession to that one way or the other? All God says here, restore what was taken, add 20%. Whether they accept it or they don't, that's fair. I'm God, I know what I'm doing. This is about you making it right. Whether they accept it or not is not on you. That's on them. This is what's fair. You see, the trespass offering required Restitution, not reconciliation. You know, reconciliation, it, it requires the involvement of two parties. And reconciliation should always be desired. The victim and the wrongdoer, repentance and forgiveness and coming back together, this relationship being reconciled. But hey, we live in a fallen place and sometimes that doesn't happen. So what do I do? Well, you go and you make good, whether it's received or not, and then we're good. Reconciliation requires two parties, but restitution can be a one-way street. But it's a necessary one. Now, how these things apply to whatever beef you have with someone else, it's hard for me to say. Every situation is different. What does restitution look like in your situation? I don't know. But I can say this, that restitution goes further than simply saying you're sorry. Now, saying you're sorry is a good place to start. But it goes further than that. It might begin with an apology that, that's manifesting from a desire to confess your sin. But I challenge you, what will it take for restitution to occur? Again, I don't know the situation, so I can't get specific. 
But it's that that we desire, should desire. So we should get on our knees and say, Lord, I've harmed someone. I've wronged them. It's not enough to just say, I'm sorry. I've got to make this right. Peace. So Lord, you've got to tell me, what is the 20%? We get what's restored in full, typically. But what's above it? What's beyond it? See, friend, these things matter to God. The question is, do they matter to you? Now, before we get to the final lesson that we can draw from the trespass offering, there is one big component to God's structuring of the nation of Israel that we do need to address. In Leviticus, we've noted that God was specifically ordering the way he wanted society to operate. And he was doing this largely to contrast a worldly system that was tainted by sin, poorly structured. With that in mind, there is an underlying concept behind the trespass offering, an idea, a big one, that is radical and at this time totally new. In the Bible, Egypt was presented as a society. It's really what God was ordering to contrast. And it was a society, it was filled with injustices and rampant inequalities. Like, for example, out of just a deep fear, the minority population of Hebrews were gaining power and influence. The Egyptians enslaved an entire ethnic class with zero repercussions, zero recourse. They brutalized the people of Israel, forcing them into labor camps. It was unjust and it was wrong. In addition to the generational and systematic slavery, at the end of Genesis, we have the story of Joseph. And in that story, it was in Egypt that we have the very first mention of a prison system, jail. Joseph, if you recall, was falsely accused of a crime. And without trial or opportunity to defend himself, he was incarcerated with no way to regain his freedom. You know, in light of the fact that Israel has just spent 400 or so years in Egypt, suffering under that broken worldly system, what makes God's ordering of the nation now so fascinating is you know what we have zero mention of? In God's ordering of this new society, no mention whatsoever of a prison system at all. It's not included. In fact, the entire way that crime was to be handled within this new society ordered by God himself. It was revolutionary and the first of its kind in all of the world. You see, at the heart of the trespass offering was the idea that restitution was the best way to provide justice for the victim, effectively rehabilitate the lawbreaker, and in the end, deter continued criminality. Like, as we've already read, if you did something wrong, you wronged your neighbor, the law required the guilty party take ownership of their crime and immediately engage in a process of making it good to restore in full with another 20%. Instead of serving time in jail, we had this system of restoration. The idea of serving time as being an equitable consequence? It's craziness. And it's unjust and it's not included. Not only 
does this concept explain and will explain why certain crimes resulted in immediate death? Why? Well, there was no way the culprit could make restitution. So it was a death sentence. Or it explains why a failure to obey these particular laws would result in that person being excommunicated from society. You were kicked out. This concept even explains why there was a Levitical allowance of slavery. But it embodied something radically different. Like we'll see, generational servitude, the enslaving of ethnic minorities, was completely forbidden in the law. Instead, slavery was a means by which a person with no money could make restitution for a crime through labor. And then once the debt was paid, he was freed. In fact, there were certain times of the year, the year of Jubilee, where it didn't matter what went on, everyone was freed, all debts were canceled, and we all started fresh. You racked up all that student debt, boom, the year of Jubilee, it was gone. Cool society, interesting way it's structured. Now, there are those that see Leviticus as antiquated. Oh, it's so regressive. But you know, in America, there is no question our penal system is terribly broken. And justice far from fair or equitable. According to the Prison Policy Initiative, in 2016, 2.3 million people were incarcerated. One of the biggest indicators our system doesn't work is that within five years of being released from prison, the recidivism rate is 76.6%. Our approach is not just and it's not fair, and it doesn't work. It doesn't deter crime. Like, I wonder what our society would look like if instead of using time served as a mode of punishment, we had a system where a criminal had to make restitution. Needless to say, we'd save a lot of money, and recidivism rates would plummet. Now, in a roundabout way, this leads me to the third big idea that we can draw from the trespass offering. There is no question that God cares deeply about the victim receiving justice. Like, aside from the fact that requiring restitution forces the guilty party to understand the full ramifications of their sin, of their crime, the brilliance of the system is that its central pursuit isn't punishing someone, but making sure the person who's been victimized is made whole. This was so important to God that He's clear He wouldn't even entertain an offering be made by a guilty person until the victim was taken care of. And again, I'm ruining any chance I have of running for politics, and I don't want to beat a drum, but our legal system is a joke because we have separated criminal adjudication from civil litigation. Our courts fail to provide justice because they're more interested in punishing the wrongdoer than seeing the person who's been wronged restored. Sadly, a criminal serves crime, serves time for a crime, but no attempts ever made to ensure the person who's a victim is good. It's why, it's why we recidivism rates are high and, and, and we have a victimhood culture because people are never taken care of. God takes care of them. The trespass offering had a concession for this. Fourth, you can't help but note 
through the examples that the Lord uses throughout our text. That God is keenly aware how sin manifests in our human condition. Like within this passage, it's interesting that God mentions lying. God knows what we do. He mentions stealing, bearing false witness, making promises we can't keep. Shoot, God even references the finder's keeper's impulse. I know you guys, how you are. And and what I find amazing about that is that it tells me that Jesus didn't come to earth to save you and I from a theoretical view of sin. But he knew what our sin really looked like. God knew. But there's another angle to this we have to consider. The trespass offering also confirms the fact that God also knows. He knows what our sin is like, but he also knows the way in which our sin weighs heavily upon us. You see, God knows the guilt you carry. He knows the weight of it. The the, the brutal effects of the human soul of bearing iniquity. The ramifications of sin and shame. God knows. knows what our sin looks like, but He knows how our sin affects us. (laughs) Which is why He created a mechanism to free us. Not just from our sin, but the burden that comes. Like in closing, the final idea that we should take away from the trespass offering is that Jesus is willing, more than willing, to forgive even our intentional sins. The ones we commit when we're stubborn. (laughs) On four separate occasions, through this passage, Leviticus 5, 10, 13, 16, and 18, you'll find the Lord giving a promise. This this what needs to happen. Repentance and confession, restitution. This is important. Don't overlook these. You don't even come. But when that happens, repeated over and over and over again, it shall be forgiven him. It's a promise. The burden of sin, God knows it's heavy. But Jesus promises. He's promising you that if you come to him, If you confess your sin to Him, if you place your faith upon the sacrifice that He offered for atonement. Friend, how amazing that you shall be forgiven by the Most High God. Amen? So Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word.